Never in my career have I seen such a complete failure of corporate controls and such a complete absence of trustworthy financial information as occurred here. From compromised systems integrity and faulty regulatory oversight abroad to the concentration of control in the hands of a very small group of inexperienced, unsophisticated, and potentially compromised individuals, this situation is unprecedented. That is a quote from John J. Ray III, the current CEO of the very troubled FTX, which just filed for Chapter 11 relief under the United States Bankruptcy Code. And this is the Korean Vegan Podcast, where we talk about how to live a more purposeful and empowered life. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Korean Vegan Podcast. This is Joanne Molinaro, your host. So I know here we talk about how to live a more purposeful and empowered life. And part of being more purposeful and empowered, of course, is being informed. So in light of the spectacular implosion of FTX and its founder, Sam Bankman-Fried, a vegan philanthropist, yeah, I did not know that either, I thought I'd devote this week's podcast to answering some questions regarding... Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, and even blockchain. Now, this podcast is designed to help you understand some of the basics and fundamentals so that you can more confidently form an opinion on all things related to and arising from blockchain, the technology underlying Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. I definitely have opinions on many things related to blockchain and cryptocurrency, but most of this podcast is going to be divorced from my opinions on these things and instead, again, just designed to give you a little bit of a primer on these topics. So without further ado, let's get into it. Well, actually, before we really get into it, maybe I should tell you a little bit more about why I, the Korean vegan, a cookbook author and social media influencer, if you will, has the bona fides to even talk about some of these really highfalutin topics. Well, many years before I withdrew from the firm's partnership, I started to look into this thing called Bitcoin. I was hearing a lot about it in the news and my favorite podcasts and, of course, on the radio. And after a little research, I discovered that Bitcoin was just plain difficult for me to wrap my head around. I don't know if that sounds familiar. <laughs> was it just PayPal with a funky new name? Or was it a physical coin that I could order like those newly minted gold-plated dollars that the mustache man liked to peddle on TV? Could I use a Bitcoin to buy groceries or a pair of new shoes or a flight to Italy? It seemed that everyone around me was talking about buying Bitcoin and, of course, the ever-cumbersome and pretty irritating FOMO settled over me. But the notion of purchasing something that I had only the vaguest understanding of rubbed me the wrong way. 
Now, to be fair, I don't really know very much about the stocks composing my mutual funds and 401k either, but I do know a thing or two about Charles Schwab, the institution that manages those funds. And more importantly, I trust them to know the things that I don't. Now, trust, as it turns out, is the real cornerstone to understanding Bitcoin. And we'll talk about that a little bit more later. I decided to spend some time digging into it. I actually spent the next several years studying Bitcoin and then blockchain, the technology underlying Bitcoin. And ultimately, I determined that in order to fully appreciate the foundational precepts of cryptocurrency, I had to read up on the basics of just currency in general. Why does money exist? What is money? What is value? What is intrinsic value? And what goes into transferring value? It was a hobby more than anything else, but it inevitably seeped into my legal practice. By 2020, I was one of a few lawyers in the United States that knew a thing or two about this inscrutable new landscape populated with million-dollar JPEGs of grumpy monkeys. And I could speak the language in the context of a bankruptcy proceeding, which we're now all seeing was probably a good thing. I was not only a member of my firm's blockchain task force, I'd written extensively about the topic, spoken at numerous crypto events, and even trained some of the largest Fortune 100 companies on what is Bitcoin. Now, the last matters that I handled before withdrawing from the partnership at my law firm were those related to the largest crypto Chapter 11 cases ever filed at that time under the United States Bankruptcy Code called In Re Cred Inc. Cred, the debtor, styled itself as a financial services platform that essentially borrowed your crypto, which they would then invest in exchange for rather exorbitant interest payments. Now, Cred's hedging strategy proved catastrophically rigid in the face of crypto's volatility, and as a result, bankruptcy soon followed, along with accusations of fraud, conversion, and all the other hallmarks of financial chicanery. Before we get into the real nitty-gritty of this primer, I thought it might be helpful to provide a handful of definitions for some terms you'll be hearing a lot over the next several minutes. The definitions of many, if not all, of these terms remain subject to debate. However, I provide these at this point in the podcast for purposes of making this episode easier to understand. Now, most of them will not actually make much sense to you now, but hopefully by the end of this episode, they will serve as sort of a handy little glossary for future reference. So let's get some of these out of the way. Cryptocurrency is a digital currency in which transactions are verified and records maintained by a decentralized system using cryptography, i.e. codes, rather than by a centralized authority like a bank. And we're going to talk about all of these concepts soon. Blockchain is a decentralized and distributed digital ledger. Digital just means that it's on the internet or a network, which is a word that I like to use in order to kind of imagine what the blockchain looks like, on which transactions using many cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin are executed and stored. Put another way, blockchain is the technology underlying many popular cryptocurrencies. Think of it like the internet, 
on steroids. Bitcoin. Bitcoin is a cryptocurrency, the first cryptocurrency to be used on a blockchain. It is also the most popular and at present valuable cryptocurrency. Nodes. Nodes are the computers that are connected to a blockchain. They are tasked with verifying and publishing data onto the blockchain. Nodes are compensated for this work, some of which can be referred to as mining, all of which we'll get into, through the blockchain's native cryptocurrency. Hashing. Hashing is the mathematical process that converts an input of data of arbitrary length into an encrypted output, i.e. something that you won't be able to decode, of a fixed length. So think of like when you are entering a number that's way too long onto a spreadsheet to fit the width of your column, you get all those hashes. Think of it sort of like that. That's an analogy. Regardless of the original amount of data or file size involved that's input, its unique hash will always be the same size. Moreover, hashes cannot be used to reverse engineer or decode the input from the hashed output. They bear no relationship to the substance of the input data. Now, as I said, this is by no means an exhaustive list of definitions related to this topic, and there are probably many folks right now who might have a bone to pick with some of these definitions. For example, there are some who believe that Bitcoin isn't a cryptocurrency at all. These are merely meant to facilitate getting through this episode with a little bit more agility. Now, I've written a lot about this topic. I've talked a lot about this topic. And honestly, the best compliment I've ever received was that my explanation was one of the easiest to understand the reader had ever encountered. And countless people have come up to me like after a presentation or a panel or even a training to say, okay, now I'm really finally starting to get what all of this is about. And that makes me so, so happy. As with all things... I approach training as an opportunity to tell a story because they're not only easier to digest, they are easier to remember. So let me tell you the story of Bitcoin. All stories have a beginning, middle, and end. And the story of Bitcoin, or at least this story about Bitcoin, starts in the late 1990s. Prior to the Great Recession, which occurred between 2007 and 2009, the economy enjoyed nearly two decades of relative stability and growth. It was during this time that the government rolled back some of the existing banking regulation, most notably the Glass-Steagall Act. The GSA, among other things, installed the FDIC as a backstop on deposits, i.e., you know, you've heard FDIC insured, and provided for the separation between commercial and investment banking. In 1999, the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act repealed certain key provisions of the GSA, permitting banks and brokerages to become larger. Now, against this backdrop, consumers continued to deposit their money with their banks, withdraw their money from their banks, borrow money from their banks, and transfer money through their banks. In so doing, consumers implicitly 
trusted that the money they put into their banks would be available at any time for withdrawal or transfer. They trusted that the money they received from payers and other transferers would be deposited into their accounts and accurately reflected. They trusted that the money they transferred to a payee or other transferee would end up with the intended recipient. They trusted that the banks were safeguarding the money of their depositors against theft, against fraud, and of course later cybersecurity attacks. And finally, they trusted that the government and relevant regulatory bodies were reinforcing all of the above. The catastrophic collapse that started in 2007 revealed a financial maw, like a deregulated space unfettered with the restrictions of the GSA in which the shadow banking system was permitted to thrive and banking institutions grew to be too big to fail. The federal government expended nearly $500 billion to bail out these too-big-to-fail banks and insurance companies while millions of everyday folks who had fallen prey to the predatory lending practices of the recipients of bailout money lost their homes. Thus, the Great Recession placed consumers in this really horrible catch-22. On the one hand, they no longer wanted to work with the banks that engaged in shady loan practices, but on the other hand... They wanted to deposit their hard-earned cash with the banks that were purportedly too big to fail because with the big bailout, the government had proven itself to be essentially a guarantor on their deposits. And thus, these banks grew even bigger, giving them leverage against not just smaller banks, but the depositors themselves. For some consumers, the trust had been irreparably broken. And against this backdrop... Q Bitcoin. I think the big problem with understanding Bitcoin and its place in the world and the problem that it's trying to solve is that it's so easy for people to take for granted how many intermediaries actually stand between buying a bushel of kale or a bag of sunflower seeds. I have a Sunday morning routine. It's my day off, meaning I don't have to run or even work out. Like I don't even go to the gym on Sundays. I love it. Instead, I just roll out of bed when I want to, and my husband and I drive over to our favorite local cafe. We split a bagel sandwich and some pancakes while doing our daily wordle. Yes, we do it every single day. And before going back home, I visit with the stalls of the local farmer's market located in the same parking lot. None of the vendors will accept a bag of sunflower seeds in exchange for a bushel of kale, but they will accept cash, credit card, and Venmo. Now, if I want to pay in cash, I need to visit the bank or an ATM to pull out the cash from my checking account. A teller or the ATM will need to verify who I am via a PIN or my government-issued ID, locate my account on their network, verify I actually have enough funds to honor the withdrawal, and then pull the money out of their till. All of this requires me to trust my bank. If I want to pay in credit card, 
I need to trust that the device the vendor is using will do all the same things a teller would do, verify who I am, locate my account, verify that I have sufficient credit, and then transfer the right amount, not the wrong one, to the right recipient or their bank account. If I want to pay with Venmo, I need to trust that the application, Venmo, identifies my bank, communicates with the bank to verify my identity, locate my account, verify the amount of funds in that account, transfer the correct amount to the right person, etc., etc., etc. Now, this whole thing is a terrifically glossed summary of all the small leaps of faith we must take when consummating the most ordinary transaction, e.g., buying some kale at the farmer's market, each of which represents an intermediary standing between me and the person selling me said bushel of kale. We have my bank, we have the vendor's bank, the manufacturers of the ATM, the software engineers that program Venmo, the various security companies that handle the verifications and checks, not to mention the government that regulates the currency, i.e. U.S. dollar, as well as the operations of the aforementioned intermediaries themselves to ensure that all of this goes without a hitch. But what if we could live in a world where we didn't need to rely on any of those people? On October 31st, 2008, Satoshi Nakamoto, a person or a group of persons nobody really knows, published a white paper titled Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer electronic cash system. The author envisioned a system in which people could transfer value without the need for trust, without the need for banks, ATMs, or even the government. Rather, Satoshi called for a return to the olden days when I could give you a bushel of kale for a bag of sunflower seeds or something very much like that without any middlemen to facilitate, record, or enforce the trade. The transaction would be transparent, instantaneous, and therefore easily ascertainable and recordable and virtually impervious to fraud. No longer would a depositor need to trust that the money she left with her bank would be there tomorrow. No longer would a vendor who sold a day's worth of fruits and vegetables at the farmer's market need to check to make sure the payments he received on Venmo were accurately reflected on his account and available for withdrawal. No longer would a credit card holder receive their 10th email in a year, notifying them that there was a mysterious cybersecurity leak. And no longer would taxpayers be told that their money would be used to prop up the very same institutions that kicked them out of their homes. Thus, Bitcoin and the blockchain on which it was created was supposed to be and basically is nothing more than a coin that allows you to trade your bushel of kale for their bag of sunflower seeds without the need for banks. The problem of trust, of course, rests on the problem of being human. Humans are susceptible to error. Oops, sorry, Miss Jones, I typed in $800 instead of $8,000 when depositing your check. Or humans are susceptible to coercion. I had to give the robber the money. He put a gun to my head. And of course, humans are susceptible to greed. No one will notice if I siphon a little bit off the top. These funds are FDIC insured anyway. So in order to create a system that removes the need for trust, you require a system that removes the need for humans. Enter math. 
So we talked a little bit about the definition of blockchain earlier, and here we're going to dive deep into what blockchain actually is, because you really can't understand crypto, Bitcoin, or basically anything related to Web3 or NFTs without understanding what blockchain is. Let's start with a more technical definition of blockchain. As defined earlier, the blockchain is an incorruptible digital ledger of economic transactions that can be programmed to record not just financial transactions, but virtually anything of value. Digital data is recorded in blocks, each of which is assigned a unique hash. The hash serves as an identifying seal that ensures that the data on the block have not been tampered with. Because remember, as we talked about earlier, when you change the information on the block, the hash also automatically changes. Each block also contains on it the hash of the preceding block, which is what allows for the formation of a chain. So just to reinforce that, why is it called a blockchain? Because all of the blocks on which there resides data, and therefore they are hashed in order to reflect the data on that block, are actually chained together by those hashes because the hash will tell you what block came before it. So a key attribute of a blockchain is that the data is shared or distributed. That's why it's called a distributed digital ledger. It's a ledger that contains digital information, i.e. information through the internet, and it's distributed as in it's shared. And we'll talk a little bit more about to whom it's shared. So here is an easier to understand, I think, definition of blockchain. Imagine a humongous spreadsheet containing digital data. It's data entered through and stored via the internet that can be entered by anyone who has access to the internet and is duplicated thousands of times and distributed to numerous computers called nodes on a vast network. So we talked about nodes earlier. A copy of that humongous spreadsheet is updated every time a single item is changed, so much as a period is moved. The new version of the spreadsheet is redistributed to all those nodes, those computers, each of which then stores its own copy of the same spreadsheet, including every historical version of that spreadsheet from its creation. Because each node stores its own copies of every single version of the entire massive spreadsheet, there is no one central repository or administrator of the data or king node. Rather, the distributed ledger is decentralized. It's kind of like Wikipedia. That was actually the analogy that I thought of when I first finally understood what blockchain is. So anyone with access to the internet can write just about any old thing on Wikipedia. And as a result of that, we've seen some really funny <laughs> Wikipedia articles, right? However, there are some really big differences from Wikipedia. There's no central website administrator that cleans up, fact checks, or otherwise updates the blockchain. So when you go on to Wikipedia, you don't see all the ugly versions and the typos. You may see some of that, but you don't see all of that. You see its current polished up version. But in the blockchain, everyone can see every single version that ever existed for all time.
So imagine the amount of data that you would actually see once you get onto the blockchain. You don't see that on Wikipedia. False data cannot be published onto the blockchain. We've definitely seen that <laughs> spurious data has made it onto Wikipedia. That basically cannot happen onto the blockchain. And that is because of math. And we'll get into that. Now let's apply this weird spreadsheet Wikipedia analogy to Bitcoin. Think of the Bitcoin blockchain as a very large spreadsheet that contains all Bitcoin transactions. Let's say company A wishes to transfer to company B 10 Bitcoins. Company A will publish its intention to do so on the Bitcoin network. The network of computers, i.e. the nodes, will then go to work. They will verify numerous things, including number one, company A's identity by checking the public version of its private key, a unique identifier that serves as a digital signature. It will also check that company A has at least 10 bitcoins and three, the identity of company B, the intended recipient. These are just three things that the nodes will verify. There'll be a lot of other things that the nodes will verify, but at a minimum, these are three things that it needs to verify in order to publish the transaction. Now, all of these verifications occur through the following mechanism of incentives. The nodes, these computers that receive and keep every single version of the massive spreadsheet, are tasked with performing random math problems in order to verify every piece of information necessary to properly transfer Bitcoin from company A to company B. The nodes ensure that the transaction is not only properly executed, but that it is recorded onto a block, which is sort of like a page out of a ledger. However, no information gets published onto a block unless there is a consensus, i.e. more than half the nodes on the blockchain agree that the data is truthful and therefore can be published onto a block. The nodes are incentivized to do this because the first node to solve the mathematical problem necessary to execute the transaction gets compensated with, you guessed it, some Bitcoin. So there's no bank, there's no institution run and operated by a bunch of human beings that confirms that company A has enough coin to transfer to company B and that the parties to the proposed transaction are who they say they are. Rather, the transaction is completely self-executing and relies on computer programming for the security that is oftentimes taken for granted when dealing with banks, escrow agents, and other financial institutions that facilitate these transactions at a cost. And we're not just talking about fees, we're talking about human error and fraud, to name just a few. So it's usually at this point when I hear... I still don't get it. <laughs> or I think I'm starting to get it, but not really. Or my favorite, it sounds like a Ponzi scheme to me. So let's go back to the problem that Bitcoin is trying to solve. Bitcoin was created to allow people to exchange value, i.e. my kale for your sunflower seeds, without banks. So how do you verify all the info necessary to execute the transaction without human beings? Well, the Bitcoin blockchain does this by using math, the most infallible, random, and thus objective and non-manipulatable arbiter of truth, 
coupled with the self-sustaining incentive of more Bitcoin. Whichever node correctly solves the math problem first wins Bitcoin to effectively eliminate the need for humans and thus trust. You cannot put a gun to math's head. You cannot bribe math with 10 bags of gold and you cannot get math so freaking drunk that it can no longer solve two plus two. How do you make sure that a greedy human being doesn't come in and hack the whole system? Well, there are a lot of safeguards in place that make at least the Bitcoin blockchain virtually unhackable. Can't really say this with some of the other blockchains, but at least with the Bitcoin blockchain. First of all, you have the nodes that are incentivized to make sure nothing false ever gets published onto the blockchain. Otherwise, they don't get the Bitcoin. Second, the blockchain operates on a consensus model, as we talked about, meaning that no data can actually get written onto a block unless the majority of nodes agree that it is truthful. Third, the entire blockchain is visible to anyone at all times. Everyone has access to the entire blockchain from the beginning of time and therefore to effectively hack the blockchain, one would not only need to change the current version, they would need to change all versions in every node's possession. Fourth, because each block is assigned a hash that identifies it in a sequential order, i.e. block B will always be identified in such a way that anyone can tell it comes after block A and before block C, if anyone tries to monkey around with the data, the hash will be changed and the chain will be broken. For example, let's say Mr. Fraudster wants to change the info on block B to say that instead of 10 Bitcoin, he was given 100 Bitcoins. If he changes the data on block B, the unique hash that was tied to the original data, i.e. a transfer of only 10 Bitcoins, will be changed. That new hash will no longer come after block A and before block C the chain will be broken and the nodes will not allow that data to be published. In this sense, the data already written onto a block are immutable. So how do you ensure that people's information remains private? If everyone can see the blockchain at any time for all eternity, isn't that a serious privacy issue? Well, each person on the Bitcoin blockchain has a private key, a large randomly generated number with hundreds of digits that are usually represented as strings of alphanumeric characters. This private key is basically a signature for transactions that allow the nodes to verify that people are who they say they are. But beyond the private keys, which basically is indecipherable, no one would really be able to tell from this private key, oh, that's Joanne Molinaro, unless, of course, Joanne Molinaro makes a mistake of identifying herself as such, there is no other accessible identifying information on the blockchain. So now that we've covered the fundamentals, let's go over some broad takeaways. The strength of the blockchain is directly related to its length, literally. The longer the chain, the harder it is to break it. Because of the hashes associated with the blocks, in order to change data on a particular block, you would not only need to change the data on that block, but the data residing on all the blocks preceding it. Thus, the longer the chain and the more blocks you have to alter, the stronger the security. Because Bitcoin is the first blockchain-based cryptocurrency, it is arguably the most secure blockchain that exists. And not surprisingly, it has never been hacked. Nodes need to be properly incentivized to do the work. 
Hence, you can't have blockchain and the security it promises without cryptocurrency. Remember, the purpose of blockchain and Bitcoin is to provide a universe in which folks can enter transactions without the need for trust. In order to do that by definition, a blockchain must have security and therefore it must have cryptocurrency, the incentive for nodes to provide that security. Conversely, you can't really have cryptocurrency as it's currently defined. Some people will debate what cryptocurrency actually means, but for our purposes, you can't have cryptocurrency without blockchain. Cryptocurrency was supposed to serve as a digital proxy of value that could be exchanged in a decentralized ecosystem and blockchain is the technology underpinning that ecosystem. Now, blockchain itself doesn't need to serve as merely a platform for people to exchange value, even though that was the original purpose of the Bitcoin blockchain. Theoretically, the virtues of blockchain, the immutability and security can be leveraged for other applications. For example, blockchain can serve as a tool for facilitating first-in-time analyses. An immutable and complete record of all transactions can be useful for identifying the owner of a trademark, patents, deeds, since ownership of those things depends in part upon when the property right was asserted and to whom that right was published. Supply chain management. Because all transactions on the pure blockchain are visible to everyone at all times, tracing transactional information becomes much easier and cost-effective, and it also becomes much more reliable because we know the data cannot be changed. A good example of this is how Walmart's food and safety department deployed some of the components of blockchain to keep tabs on its organic produce to make sure that it was, in fact, organic. Big data. Blockchain is a potential solution to the effective management and organization of enormous amounts of data related to anything, not just money. Think of the last time you went to your doctor's appointment and they had your address wrong, even though you gave them the update the last time you were there and online. This happens to me all the freaking time. Well, imagine the deployment of blockchain technology in healthcare. It will ensure that once your info, i.e. your address, has been updated, that it gets distributed across the blockchain, eliminating the fragmentation that often weighs down big data and results in your annoyance. Now, just a reminder, again, because I literally just read an article that said, oh, you don't need cryptocurrency. You could just use all these benefits of blockchain without crypto. Not really. Even though blockchain can and has been used for a number of other use cases, blockchain does not work without cryptocurrency. In order to erect the robust security features that will facilitate the removal of trust from the equation, nodes need to be incentivized to verify the proposed transactions. So this week, in lieu of Ask Joanne, in order to continue our theme here of providing you with a little bit of a guide on cryptocurrency, I thought I would answer the frequently asked questions that I receive after a training or during a panel or presentation or some of the questions that I've seen on Twitter. So one of the first things that I wanted to tackle was something that my partner uh, at the firm often said to me anytime I mentioned Bitcoin but there is no there there. <laughs> My partner, Jeff, he's the head of the bankruptcy group over at Foley. He always used to say that Bitcoin was just one big pyramid scheme since there's no there there. Unlike gold, 
Many believe that Bitcoin has no intrinsic value, i.e. value in and of itself. Rather, Bitcoin-like money serves as a proxy for value. But with the case for crypto, there is no government backing to support that proxy. So, is Jeff right? Is there no there there? Well, Bitcoin derives value in a number of different ways, at least according to the Bitcoin maximalists. First, similar to gold or other precious metals and unlike fiat currency, i.e. government-backed currency, it is scarce. There are only 21 million Bitcoins out there to be held or mined, and that's it. Sometimes shrinking supply can create increased demand, but scarcity alone doesn't imbue value. As Jeff continues to intone, there needs to be there, there. It's always at this point that I always say to people, well, scarcity isn't enough for value. I will create one Joanne Molinaro baseball card, even though I've never played baseball in my entire life. There will only be one of them. That doesn't mean that all of a sudden it will be worth a bajillion dollars, right? Well, hopefully by now, based on why Bitcoin was created in the first place, to create a direct peer-to-peer mechanism for exchanging anything of value back to the kale and sunflower seeds without having to trust in third-party intermediaries whose interests are not always aligned with yours, you can see the utility and this potential value of Bitcoin. You can call it intrinsic or not. And here, I know I said I wouldn't really add my opinion to this podcast. I will stop to say that I think that the notion of intrinsic value likely needs to be reframed in the context of an ever-expanding digital landscape. What currency is or isn't, what precious metal is or isn't may no longer be applicable or even relevant as we continue to move as much inwards into the metaverse as we do outwards into outer space. The idea of tying intrinsic value to a lump of metal, something that would arguably be worthless inside the metaverse, is incomplete, if not short-sighted. Moreover, the whole purpose of blockchain is to remove the need for government backing. And therefore, again, the current definition of intrinsic value may simply be an apposite as it pertains to Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. Okay, here's another question. You say the blockchain is unhackable, and yet there are so many examples of hacking and theft of cryptocurrency, including FTX. Well, Most hacking that preceded the theft of cryptocurrency have occurred on largely unregulated crypto exchanges. FTX is an example of a crypto exchange. Like stock exchanges, crypto exchanges are platforms that facilitate the easy investment in and trading of various cryptocurrencies. Most of them, including the largest ones, are not on the blockchain themselves. Thus, What's actually being hacked? Not the blockchain. Rather, the exchange on which human beings have placed the cryptocurrencies. These exchanges are established, administered, and operated by human beings or their proxies. Hence, they are neither decentralized nor unhackable in the way that blockchain is, and in many ways are even more susceptible to cyber attacks than traditional banks. Why? Well, because notably, the crypto sitting on an exchange is often not insured, unlike cash deposited with an FDIC-insured bank. Moreover, should an exchange file for bankruptcy, e.g. FTX, there's a very high probability that the crypto in the debtor's possession will be considered property of the debtor's. 
and not property belonging to the crypto holders or hodlers, as they're sometimes referred to. I remember uh, a few months ago, I read an article that indicated that Coinbase, the single largest crypto exchange, issued a notice saying that, hey, we're not filing for bankruptcy, but if we do, just FYI, there's a chance that all the crypto we're holding for you guys that it will belong to the debtor's estate and not to you. Okay, just, just putting that out there, <laughs> just FYI. So based upon that notice, as well as what we're now seeing in the FTX and just based upon my experience with the Section 541 of the Bankruptcy Code, there is a very, very, very high likelihood that any of the crypto, the Bitcoin, the E, the all of those tokens and currencies that are being held by a chapter 11 debtor that will belong to the chapter 11 debtors estate it will not be available for withdrawal to the cryptocurrency hodlers so if you can't access your bitcoin via an exchange like ftx or coinbase because you're worried that they'll fall for or have already filed for bankruptcy where do you actually put the bitcoin well, the best and most secure place to store your Bitcoin is on the blockchain itself by using cold storage. Cold storage refers to a digital wallet, one that you keep with you or place in a secure location and is thus offline. And for those of you who don't know, a wallet, a digital wallet is something that looks a little bit like a USB drive. It's a physical thing that you actually hold. It's not some sort of imaginary token. Your digital wallet, when it's connected to the internet, serves as a portal to the blockchain. And in order to maintain maximum protection against hacking, should be your exclusive gateway to the blockchain. The key to access the portal is the passphrase that you are assigned when you first configure your wallet. So what happens if I lose my digital wallet? Well, theoretically, your coins aren't literally stored in your digital wallet. It's not like there's some elf that comes into your house every night and takes all of your little bitcoins and puts them on your USB looking drive wallet. <laughs> Rather, the digital wallet is merely the interface between yourself and the blockchain. Depending on the kind of wallet you own and how it's configured, you may be able to access your crypto so long as you remember the passphrase that you were assigned when you configured your wallet. Now, what happens if you can't remember your passphrase or your private key? Well, then you can't access the blockchain and withdraw, liquidate, or transfer your crypto without it. This is the equivalent of throwing all the gold nuggets that you've been hoarding underneath your bed into the freaking ocean. They are, for all intents and purposes, completely useless to you. So what does mining cryptocurrency mean? Well, when I think of nodes mining Bitcoin, I literally picture rosy-cheeked little gnomes with droopy hats and bulbous noses excavating for small shiny coins embossed with the letter B. <laughs> I think that's such a cute image. But mining is far more tedious than that. It merely refers to the nodes that are expending their computer powers to solve as many mathematical problems as quickly and accurately as possible so they can be rewarded with Bitcoin or the applicable cryptocurrency. So again, these are the nodes that are verifying the information necessary to publish the data onto the blockchain. Aren't there other crypto coins like Ethereum and Dogecoin? Yes, there are definitely other cryptocurrencies out there. As of March 2022, there were more than 18,000 cryptocurrencies, at least as it's defined here. But notably, 
None of them were actually created on the Bitcoin blockchain using the Bitcoin blockchain's protocol. Bitcoin is the only digital coin that was created on the Bitcoin blockchain. Ethereum was created on the Ethereum blockchain, a digital network that operates under an entirely different protocol than the Bitcoin blockchain. And Dogecoin was actually created via a fork of the Bitcoin blockchain, which means that some of the coding for Dogecoin's protocol is based indirectly off the Bitcoin blockchain. So we're not going to talk about forks because that's an entirely different fork in our road, if you will. And uh, we want to keep this podcast to under an hour if possible. Aren't there major environmental issues associated with crypto? Well, in order to solve the massively hard math problems necessary to reinforce the security of the blockchain, nodes expend enormous amounts of energy. And as the Bitcoin blockchain in particular continues to grow, the sheer weight of the chain also requires energy to maintain. In 2021 alone, on average, each Bitcoin resulted in $11,314 in climate damage, with total global damages of all coins mined in 2021 exceeding $3.7 billion. It is estimated that from 2016 to 2021, the average climate damage to coin market price, i.e. the ratio of climate damage in dollars to the market price of the coin in dollars was 35%. Now, put in context, this is less than the climate cost of coal and natural gas and gasoline, but is roughly equivalent to that of producing beef, which we all know is not great. Now, what are NFTs? Are they just JPEGs of monkeys? No. <laughs> Sort of. NFT stands for non-fungible token. And like Bitcoin, it serves as a proxy for something else. In the most popular use case, the token is meant to represent artwork. And I think this is where the confusion arises. Many people confuse the NFT as the artwork itself, but it is a token that symbolizes the non-fungible value, i.e. the art. So it's not the actual art itself. It's no one's actually printing a copy. Well, maybe they are, but that's not what it was intended for, to print a copy of the JPEG and then like put it on the wall, okay? Now, the confusion arises because once again, many folks don't understand well, what is the problem that NFTs are trying to solve, Right. We know now that Bitcoin was created to solve the problem of trust. Can you think of a scenario in which anyone would want something that represents the art when they could just have the art itself? Can you think of a world in which you don't have actual houses with actual walls with actual artwork on them, but representations of the same, where you don't even have an actual body, but you have an avatar. For those who've grown up with Fortnite, the answer is obvious. Video games. But expand NFTs to include not just artwork, but any old thing that requires some type of graphic representation, like the sweater your avatar likes to wear or the nail polish it prefers, and think beyond video games to virtual universes or the metaverse. So has FTX spelled the end of Bitcoin? I like to think of Bitcoin as a modern day Robin Hood. And I know some of you are rolling your eyes and are like, no, Joanne, but just hear me out. 
Satoshi's white paper, however sterile and technical, remains a powerful rebuke of a system that leveraged an unconscionable power imbalance between Goliaths that were too big to fail and everyday people like my mom and dad who were just trying to make ends meet in order to maintain the status quo. Are there problems with how blockchain has been deployed by criminals and other fraudsters? Absolutely. Should we be concerned with the amount of climate damage the Bitcoin blockchain and other blockchains are causing with every single transaction? Absolutely. But the creators of Bitcoin never claimed that the blockchain was a perfect solution, merely a potential one, one that we can learn from, just as Robin Hood probably wished he didn't have to resort to theft in order to more evenly distribute the country's wealth. Based upon what little I know of Sam Bankman-Fried, and it's like very, very little, it's possible he believed in Bitcoin's potential as a tool for justice as well. He may have also seen what I do, that as climate change bears down on us, there will be a need to expand inward as much as outward. There are only so many places left unexcavated on this planet of ours, and perhaps the answer isn't a colony on Mars, but a universe inside our collective consciousness. I know, I know, to many of you, that may sound far-fetched and, quite frankly, horrifying. Maybe you're saying what I keep saying. I hope I'm dead by then. <laughs> but for people of the former FTX CEO's vintage, and for those of you who have children... The metaverse isn't an if, but a when. And although Mr. Bankman-Fried's stake in the virtual ground has been upturned and will likely be tossed aside, there are many, many others who are waiting in the Web3 wings to take his place. Because of that, I don't think that Bitcoin is at an end. Rather, I think we are all still very much in the throes of Bitcoin's explosive beginning. Well, I hope you enjoyed that primer or beginner's guide on Bitcoin, blockchain, and cryptocurrency. Of course, if you have any additional questions or follow-up related to this topic, you can check out the link below and ask Joanne. Okay, so now we're on to updates and random things. What I'm watching. Well, Anthony and I have run out of episodes of The Vow, although there's one premiering tonight. And thus, we started a new docuseries called FIFA Uncovered. I know next to nothing about FIFA. I actually thought it was called FIFO, which Anthony thought was hilarious. But I have very, very fond memories of watching the World Cup in 2002 at three in the morning with my entire family because the games were hosted in South Korea. The series uh, FIFA Uncovered on Netflix goes over the organization's rise and fall into corruption, a theme of this podcast episode, through footage and interviews with former officers and other insiders. We've only gotten through three episodes thus far, but I am definitely looking forward to watching the rest of it. What I'm listening to, in case you missed it, I had a really great fun chat with Quinn Emmett on the Important Not Important podcast. I'll include a link to that in the show notes below. 
what I'm cooking. Well, this past week I posted two recipes on my Instagram that are perfect. I mean, and I mean perfect for the holidays. They include gluten-free chocolate chip snickerdoodles because as I've mentioned many times, I really can't do the holidays without uh, snickerdoodles. I made them gluten-free just because I wanted to challenge myself and I added chocolate chips because they're gluten-free. <laughs> if you have no gluten in it, you must add chocolate. I also mazed braised tofu or tubujorim with a red wine demi-glace. I wanted to fancify it for the holidays. Both of these are absolutely delectable and worth including on your holiday dining table. I'll include a link to both of them in the show notes below. Now, as you've already heard me say multiple times, all of my recipes are housed on the Korean Vegan Meal Planner. These include recipes that I don't normally share. I share these two in the holiday spirit with all of you. But if you want access to all of my recipes, you can check out the Korean Vegan Meal Planner in the show notes below. And now we're at our favorite part of the podcast, Parting Thoughts. I once read a tweet in which a vegan claimed he was indisputably a better person than everyone who ate meat because of his ethical choice to avoid consuming animal products. And I remember at the time, this tweet, it resonated with me. I was a newly minted vegan, and I like to believe that the current version of myself was better than the previous meat-eating one. But of course, it didn't take long for me to grow irritated with so-called morally superior vegans who also happen to be racist, abusive or in other ways, totally morally bankrupt. Not only do these vegans give veganism a bad rap in general, the arrogance embodied in their stance just makes effective advocacy that much harder. The fact that FTX's CEO is vegan doesn't only prove to me that veganism does not automatically shield you from moral scrutiny or make you better than the person who grates a little bit of Parmesan over their pasta. It demonstrates that this type of evaluation altogether, i.e. am I better than other people, is largely irrelevant. Maybe you are, maybe you aren't, but who cares? Most importantly, we often lack the information necessary to make an informed judgment on such a question. The person running next to you may have started running long before you. Their finish line might come long after yours. They might be running with injuries or even with missing toes. They may be going through work stress or a divorce or tending to a loved one with cancer. There's so much more than meets the Instagram feed and judging someone based on limited information at best is a fool's errand, vegan or not. While figuring out whether you're faster than others can be important if you're trying to win a race, there's really no such thing as being the best at life. Indeed, instead of trying to live your best life, why not invest in living your best self? Because here's the thing. You win at life not because you have more money than others, more children than others, or more morality points than others. You win at life when the person crossing the finish line is someone you can be proud of, someone who's better than the person who towed the start line.
Thanks everyone for joining me for another episode of the Korean Vegan Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, do me a favor and hit the subscribe button below. If you haven't already, leave a comment and a rating. I read every single one of those, as I mentioned last week, and my gosh, they definitely make me smile. Now, if there was something particularly inspiring or insightful about this episode, maybe you have a friend who's been talking a lot about Bitcoin and crypto or FTX, go ahead and share this episode with them, with your colleagues colleagues, with your family, with your loved ones, or anyone else you think might find this episode useful. In the meantime, until next week, I wish you all a wonderful, safe, happy, and joyous Thanksgiving holiday if you celebrate that. And if not, just a wonderful, wonderful day. Mm-hmm.